This is the Ethics Lab Podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. One of the critical points that has to be addressed from an ethics standpoint as well as a medical standpoint is what is the patient's ability to contribute to decision making? Imagine a patient who suffers from an underlying psychiatric disability and comes to a hospital with a critical illness after prolonged non-adherence to a medical treatment plan. Because of their inability to follow a treatment plan, the patient now faces an end-of-life situation, even though the condition would otherwise not be considered terminal. I'm sure you can understand that such stories are both tragic and ethically complex. These stories not only cause moral distress for the healthcare team caring for the patient, but also alarm and confuse patients and their families. Ethics committees in hospitals are asked to consult on the ethical complexities in cases like these. Our guests will reflect on such patient stories and offer their ethical reflections on the challenges, on naming the components of complexity, and what is important for ethics committee members to pay attention to in patient stories like these. Joining us in conversation in this episode are Carol Taylor, a professor of medicine and nursing at Georgetown University, past director of the Pellegrino Center for Clinical Bioethics, and currently a senior scholar at the Kennedy Institute for Ethics. Michael Potash, attending physician in palliative medicine at MedStar Washington Hospital Center. He is also a assistant professor of clinical medicine at Georgetown University School of Medicine. Laura Guidry-Grimes is an assistant professor of medical humanities and bioethics at the University of Arkansas for medical science. She's also a clinical ethicist at the Children's Hospital in Little Rock, Arkansas. And Sarah Kleinfeld is a geriatric psychiatrist at the VA Medical Center in Washington, D.C. She works with elderly patients with a range of psychiatric illnesses, like bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. Sarah wanted us to note that any opinions expressed on this podcast are her own and not the opinions of the Veteran Affairs nor the federal government. My name is Kevin Murphy, and this is Ethics Lab. So the challenge we want to discuss is when healthcare professionals have a patient with underlying psychiatric disability and also a critical illness after prolonged non-adherence to a medical treatment plan. And because of their inability to follow a treatment plan, the patient faces an end-of-life situation, even though the condition would otherwise not be considered terminal. Such cases tend to be ethically complex provoke moral distress in the healthcare team, and both alarm and confuse patients and their families. So now I'm going to talk about the case of Ms. Handel. Ms. Handel is a 50-year-old woman with over 20 admissions in the past year, even more over the past two years. Her medical history includes chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, pulmonary hypertension, congestive heart failure with an ejection fraction of 40 to 45 percent, diabetes, though no dialysis is needed currently, and schizoaffective disorder. 
She has been homeless for many years, and she seems to prefer the freedom of living on the streets over living elsewhere. This hospitalization, she arrived to the emergency department with altered mental status, shortness of breath, complaints of pain, and on prior admissions, she was found unconscious along the side of the road. She has proven increasingly that she lacks decisional capacity and the ability to care for herself. Psychiatry evaluated her as capacitated in early admissions about two years ago, so she was treated as her own decision maker. But psychiatry evaluated her as ultimately lacking appreciation of her decisions and thus incapacitated over the past year. Ms. Handel does not or cannot comply with a medical regimen outside of the hospital for various reasons. She frequently refuses some aspects of her care, such as some medications and some tests. As she gets better while at the hospital, she becomes lucid and slightly more stable, but she also becomes agitated and demands that she be allowed to leave. She has a long history of leaving against medical advice or eloping or having a planned unsafe discharge to the streets. There are also um, multiple reports of verbal abuse by staff. Ms. Handel has a sister, Greta, who lives an hour away who serves as a surrogate when Ms. Handel is unsafe. Greta does not want to take Ms. Handel into her home because Greta has a full house with her daughter and grandchildren, and Ms. Handel has a history of leaving in the middle of the night and alarming everyone. Greta is concerned by how much her sister is deteriorating, but she doesn't know what to do. As an additional barrier, in this state, there is no facility that can accommodate her psychiatric complexity and her medical acuity. And so on this admission, the medical intensive care physician recommends comfort care and hospice to Greta. Laura, was this a patient you were called in to consult on? So I will say that the details have been de-identified and modified to protect the patient's confidentiality. But yes, this was a patient that I consulted on, and actually my entire team consulted on over the course of two years. Thank you, Laura. Carol, I believe you have a second patient story to share with us. So I'd like to share the story of Mr. Stone, who posed some not unique because we're starting to see more situations like this in hospice, but he certainly posed serious challenges for the hospice professional caregivers. So he's a 50-year-old male who was admitted to a hospice inpatient unit with diagnoses of osteomyelitis and sepsis. So he had infection in the bone and in the blood. His diagnoses include bipolar schizoaffective disorder, delirium, obesity, Mr. Stone weighed 375 pounds, diabetes, hypertension, and he had an above-the-knee amputation for an infected knee replacement. When he arrived at the hospice, he had an 8-centimeter diameter open wound in above that knee, uh, deep to bone, draining yellow-green discharge, and growing out antibiotic-resistant organisms. He'd been in the hospital for seven months since he first had the knee replacement. And at that point, he had pulled off the wound vacuum and he had smeared feces in the wound despite high doses of antipsychotics. And that's how we got the infections and the um, ultimate amputation. He was in restraints throughout his hospitalization. And when they tried to discontinue the restraints prior to discharge, he hit an aid in the face 
The psychiatrist at the hospital stated he did not have decision-making capacity and that his husband was the responsible party. A psychiatric note states that he's intermittently confused. His mood changes from anger to crying in seconds. He's intermittently aggressive with his partner. He's expressed thoughts of dying, wish I wasn't here, and he does have a history of past suicide attempts. Nursing notes describe the patient as yelling, cussing all day, being naked, and throwing off sheets when anyone enters his room. Tellingly, a social worker note listed 34 skilled nursing facilities who refused to take him as the hospital tried to discharge him and another 12 who did not respond. And it was at that point that they called this particular hospice, uh, which has a big heart and a great care ethic, who accepted his care. When the social worker spoke with his partner, the partner initially wanted to take the patient home, but the patient was angry with him and has a history of being both verbally and physically abusive with his partner. And so the partner decided he couldn't take him home. And the partner did agree with discharge to the hospice. And he was um, in agreement with the medical director who sought his consent to stopping antibiotics and using sedation as needed. The first day he arrived at the hospice, he somehow managed to throw himself out of bed. And the small staff was tasked with trying to get this 375-pound uh, gentleman back into bed. So the reason they requested the ethics consult is that using palliative sedation in a younger man, he's 50, with delirium rather than dementia and a serious mental illness, who's referred to hospice really because no facility was able to care for him rather than because he's terminal. He might possibly live longer than six months if he could be treated with IV antibiotics, a wound vac, a managed behavior, um, but he, he resisted those best efforts. Stopping the IV antibiotics without using sedation would likely result in sepsis, at blood infection, and death, but in weeks rather than days. If they stop his IV antibiotics and they use sedation, he will probably die in days. Let's go back to the first story. When you are asked to consult on a patient situation as described in this story, what do you anticipate and how do you prepare yourself? I think part of our our role is to try to take the most compassionate and humble take on this sort of patient narrative that we can. And what that entails is really doing good investigative work to understand the patient's history as much as you can possibly glean, uh, whether that's by uh, calling up family members or even possible friends at shelters or nursing homes who maybe have seen the patient in the past, if Adult Protective Services has been involved at some point, just to try to understand the patient as a whole person. Because if we look at any particular patient's admission on a particular date, you're seeing just such a tiny sliver of what's going on with that patient. And you're not going to be able to understand and appreciate the host of obstacles uh, that have um, been discovered over time. You might 
also be able to learn if you if you t do that investigative work um, what sorts of strategies have worked for establishing a trusting therapeutic relationship or what has worked in terms of a more successful discharge plan or perhaps a psychiatric treatment that the patient was amenable to and really seemed to help um, and so I, I think that that's a way in which fast pace um, 21st century medicine can be distracting is that we can, um, you know, we can lose sense of what the whole patient is over time unless we really commit to that solid investigation. And looking at it all knowing that no matter how much you investigate, there's still going to be so much that you are not going to understand about this patient and what they're going through and what can best help them. And so uh, having that humility and a uh, never give up creative problem solving kind of attitude, I, I think are really important starting points for any case like this. I just love that Lauren talked about humility and compassion. And I would just add to that to be open to the truth of who this person is, because boy, in healthcare, is it easy to get co-opted. And we can soak up the frustration of people who have been, you know, trying to figure this man or woman out every day. And, and so to be open to who this person is, what his or her possibilities are, I think is essential to the role that we play as clinical ethics consultants. Yeah, I, I'd love to add just that, you know, when I get a call like this, um, you know, I'm starting to think ahead because I'm thinking this person has um, not only a psychiatric illness, but it sounds like there's other underlying illnesses going on. And so I know that, um, especially in cases like this, where I think um, both, of, both of the cases that we're talking about today, the patients, you know, in the end did not, were, did not have complete capacity to be able to be involved in the shared decision making with the with the medical team. That's not to say we don't include them in who they are and and sort of what Laura and, and Carol were getting at, but that does that tells me that very often there's going to be surrogates involved, family, friends, uh, and so before I go into the meeting, I, I try to remind myself, and I often have to counsel the teams uh, that you know there's a couple things to think of with mental illness. Uh, first of all. Um, you know, that family and friends uh, who know the person so well, they may not be seeing how they are and how they behaved. You know, us as medical providers will look at this and say, okay, this is, you know, a mental illness. They may look at them and say, hey, this is just the person we know for, for a very long time. Um, you know, a lot of people, even if they've, a lot of families and friends, even if they've been, um, they've had this, this loved one who has had a mental illness, they may not even think a mental illness is a true disease. Um, and then oftentimes another thing we'll see with families is that when that person becomes sick and if that's due to their mental illness, um, they won't say, oh, well, they're sick because, or they can't take medicine because of this, or they can't adhere to a medical plan because of this. They'll often think of this in terms of a lack of will, a failing of character. Uh, so th these are often a lot of things that I will prepare myself going into a case like this. Yeah, I just sort of want to piggyback on what Michael was saying, um, particularly about things like um, blame on patients who have longstanding severe mental illnesses like bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, uh, and who also have comorbid severe medical illnesses like this patient who has COPD and heart failure. 
because I think both medical providers and family members both sometimes fall into the trap of really blaming the patient for being unable to comply with a medical treatment regimen for something like COPD or heart failure because they have a disease like schizophrenia in a way that we wouldn't blame a patient who has a really severe illness that's very difficult to cope with but doesn't have the comorbid psychiatric diagnoses. Um, And so I think it's really important when seeing and evaluating these patients that both the medical services involved in the care, but also potentially the family members or people who may become designated decision makers for these patients sort of um, acknowledge where the mental illness falls into their medical illness and their ability to care for themselves. Thanks, Sarah. Laura, I believe you wanted to add to that as well. Part of the preparation for this particular consult that we received um, was trying to anticipate what the health care team was going to want from the ethics consult because the content of the call I received was uh, from the medical ICU saying, we want to start the transition to comfort care and hospice. Uh, we want to call in the sister and make that strong recommendation. Can you facilitate this decision? And I mean, for for me, because I was familiar with Ms. Hendel's case, I knew that this was actually a brand new decision, that this particular option of going comfort care and hospice had not been presented to Greta yet, that this had not been presented to the patient ever. And so it was, it was part of the preparation to think, well, how, how are we going to work collaboratively given that this is going to be a new decision that the team wants to put on the table? And then did the ethics service support that at you know, putting that on the table at this time? Or was it maybe a bit hasty? Where was the disconnect such that this team was confident in putting that on the table now when no other physician had put that on the table in the last two years? What had changed medically or maybe nothing had changed medically and it was just a matter of an accumulation of concern about what was really best for Ms. Handel and if this revolving door situation with her in and out of the ED was considered somehow hopeless or somehow um, just too suboptimal for her well-being in the long term. You know, what was what was going into putting this particular decision on the table at this time? From your experience, what is it like for staff to be involved in patient stories like those that you've described? Given the physical, emotional, and spiritual demands of those situations? I think um, it's a really good question, and I think it causes both a lot of moral distress um, for caregivers involved in care of patients like this, um, because everyone typically involved in their care is very well-meaning and is coming from a place of trying to help the patient. Um, And oftentimes, I think that patients who have chronic psychotic spectrum illnesses, like Ms. Handel, you know, part of their disease process is being paranoid, um, is having delusions, having hallucinations, um, and all of those symptoms often make accepting care in a hospital setting very difficult um, because you have to imagine it from the patient's perspective. Um, hospitals are noisy, they're confusing, 
there is a rotation of caregivers all the time. So potentially within 24 hours, they might have two or three different nurses on different shifts providing care for them, plus a wide array of different doctors if there are multiple specialists involved in their care. Um, and it's very challenging for a patient who may, when they're not in the hospital, be quite isolated and have little to no interaction with people to all of a sudden be thrown in an environment um, where everyone is foreign, where people are poking them with needles, giving them IVs, um, and really causing a lot of chaos and disruption that they are really, because of their illness, not equipped to maybe rationalize or really understand what's going on. Oftentimes that gets manifested in agitated or angry behavior. Everything that was just said as far as empathizing with the patient's perspective, I think is right on. At the same time, when it comes to staff burnout and staff moral distress, it's not like those are irrelevant factors at all. And um, what I have seen is that who bears the, the burden, so to speak, of that kind of burnout and distress uh, really depends on the role of the healthcare professional. So uh, the physician who sees the patient for, you know, 30 minutes maybe a day is not going to experience the verbal abuse to the same degree as the nurse who is caring for the patient hour after hour. And sometimes there's really good recognition among the team members about who is bearing what with a patient and how burnout is being addressed. But there's also still, unfortunately, a widespread attitude that nurses just need to buck up and bear it and, you know, get a tougher skin and just handle it. And that's really unfair to our healthcare team as well. And so there are strategies that have been discussed um, among nurses and among bioethicists for years for how to support the team member. But when it comes to actually applying that wisdom, we don't always see it. Great. And I just wanted to speak up about Mr. Stone because obviously the hospice caregivers receiving him do not have the seven months that the hospital caregivers had. They get someone. And once the decision was made, to sedate him to manage the aggressiveness and the behavioral problems. And they use some pretty heavy-duty medications, Versed, Dilaudid, Haldol. Um, it actually, because he wasn't terminal when he presented, it created a lot of distress for the professional caregivers. And this is, I mean, if there is a magic A-team, this group of palliative care professionals is that magic A-team. They take patients from hospitals um, who have had major problems. And because of their expert caregiving, oftentimes these patients kind of their lives turn around. Um, that did not happen with Mr. Stone. And, and because he died within days of arriving in the hospice, they dealt with that. Was there something else we might have done? And if you think about the hospice philosophy, which has been to do nothing, to hasten or to prolong dying, they're like, in this instance, we are hastening his dying. Um, and, and I said to them, because I always like the transparency test, you know, if this was on the front page of your local newspaper, would you be able to throw your shoulders back and say, wow, you know, how great. 
or would you worry about what the public would think? And they said they would worry about what the public would think, but in a meeting where they had everybody who met Mr. Stone, from the volunteers who worked with him to the personal care attendants, the nurses, the pharmacists, the physician, um, none of them could say that there was something else that might have been done to get a different outcome. And that's where their peace was. But they're very uncomfortable standing in this gap um, of there not being specialized settings where people with this complexity of both psychiatric and medical problems can be appropriately cared for. Yeah, just to chime in um, with what Carol's saying um, in this particular patient, I think this case really highlights the lack of resources for mm -hmm. patients with psychiatric illness that's complicated by agitated or aggressive behaviors and um, acute medical needs. And when these patients are no longer pre appropriate for an acute care hospital, but either can't or unable to go home, there are really a lack of options for them in terms of appropriate discharge. And I think Carol really highlighted this when she was giving the case summary and mentioned how numerous um, nursing homes and subacute facilities had been approached and they all declined the patient because of his history of behavioral outbursts. Um, and unfortunately, for many of these patients, even um, in situations where they are agreeable to long transitioning to long-term inpatient psychiatric, psychiatric hospitalization, that option is often not even available to them because of their comorbid medical issues. So, for example, if a patient is still requiring intermittent IV antibiotics or has a wound vac or intermittently needs an IV, an inpatient psychiatric unit may not be able to take them because they're not equipped to handle that level of medical intervention. So these patients fall into a gray area of not really having a unit or facility that can provide the type of comprehensive medical and mental health care that they need. If you were each mentors whispering into the ear of ethics committee members, what recommendations might you offer either for these cases in specific or these types of patient stories in general? I think there's a useful way, Laura, I like what you brought up about the difference between the two cases and how you know hospice may have been appropriate for the second case for Mr. Stone, but what they did there was a little ethically complicated. But you know, when I think of, at least in whether hospice is, is appropriate generally for patients, um, I really, I try to look at, um, you know, do the burdens of continuing prolonging, prolong, uh, life prolonging therapy, do the burdens outweigh the benefits? Um, if the burdens outweigh the benefits, and then therefore the patient has less than six months uh, to live, then they are appropriate for hospice. Um, you know, it's for our, for our, these two patients, or especially for Ms. Handel, um, you know, the, the issue is she had an underlying progressive terminal illness, the, the, the lung disease. And, you know, we often think, oh, gosh, like her, Ill her mental illness, you know, kept her from taking her treatment. But we see patients all the time in our clinics and they don't do, you know, they don't, some people don't want to take insulin. They, they, it's hard to adhere to a diet. We, we, you know, I don't, I don't think uh, it's 
hard to imagine, you know, a lot of people generally aren't great at dieting. Um, so there are a lot of, you know, when we talk about adherence to a medical plan, well, you don't have to have a mental illness to not adhere to a medical plan. And for our first patient, you know, the ability to not adhere to that or the inability to adhere to a medical plan uh, sort of sped up the, her underlying progressive illness. And so really the question isn't why is this happening or uh, does, you know, is this mental illness, but really do the burdens outweigh the benefits of continuing therapy, especially if it's compulsory against her will, which can be distressing in its own right. And does she have a terminal prognosis of less than six months? To me, that's what I would suggest to sort of an ethics committee uh, that was debating whether hospice made sense for her. When it comes to non-adherence at that label, one can be stigmatizing for patients and it can breed a sense of hopelessness uh, among healthcare professionals, which is really concerning because non-adherence is almost always multifactorial. And a lot of the factors leading to non-adherence can be outside of the patient's control. But it's also possible that with the resources of a hospital, with all the different skilled expertise of a multidisciplinary team, that you can find ways to address at least some of the factors that could be making it difficult for the Mm -hmm. patient to adhere to a medical plan. And so it might be that um, if... Ms. Handel were given, or if Greta were given on her behalf, if uh, the team collaborated with both the patient and the family, there might be low-cost, more accessible options for Ms. Handel, even if she were to continue living on the street. Uh, Back when I worked in Washington, D.C., there were more resources for patients who had psychiatric complexities and lived on the street, people who would check in on them. Um, And so when you live in a setting that has those kinds of resources available and case managers at the hospital are aware of those resources and can help connect patients and families to them, then I, I think that some good work can be done to try to address the non-adherence in a way that does not stigmatize or blame the patient, but recognizes life as being challenging and difficult for all sorts of reasons. But yeah, but Laura, you'll be, you'll, you know, I'd like to point out, I'm not using compliance. You know, I'm not saying, are you complying with my plan? Uh, are you be able to stick to a plan that the doctor suggested, which doesn't, you know, I try not to imply judgment there. It's, um, like I said, I think that, you know, I, I, I've gone to a primary doctor who's like, Michael, uh, you should you should work out more. And I'm like, that's your plan, doc. I'm probably not going to adhere to it. Uh, yeah, no, I'm not disagreeing with anything you said. I'm just adding on to it that um, I think part of, I mean, part of what I would hope any ethics consultation service or ethics committee would look at is what are the barriers to adherence and um, it could be issues related to access, uh, safety, the patient's own perspective on the treatment plan that has not been adequately solicited. Perhaps the patient has not been appropriately uh, engaged as a participant in shared decision making. You know, there are so many different things that could be involved and I I would hate for non-adherence to be taken as a given. Carol or Sarah, are there other points that have not been mentioned that you believe ethics committee members need to pay attention to in these kind of patient situations? My counsel to the ethics committee members, obviously what we've been talking about, how do we make wise decisions for patients like this? 
But then I also want them to think about family members. So whether it's Mrs. Handel's sister, Greta, or Mr. Stone's husband, um, what guilt? I always say, you know, we move on from these stories and people. Family members, loved ones lived with them for the rest of their lives. So I would hope that we would be able to help family members have some peace with their role in the decision and with the outcome, which in both of these cases, um, if we transition to comfort measures or and or hospice, will be death, um, that, that they would be peaceful about that decision. And then also that we spend time with the professional caregivers who are implementing the plan. In Mr. Stone's case, um, we had a meeting after his death because there were a lot of unanswered questions and, and caregivers wanted to talk about what had happened and, and wanted to be at peace with it. So I would always hope that we don't make these sorts of decisions too easily. Um, I'm happy if they make us uncomfortable and that somehow we dedicate the time and space to addressing that discomfort. I think from the perspective of the psychiatrist, um, Number one, I think it's important that a psychiatrist has actually been involved uh, in the care of the patient um, during the acute hospitalization uh, in which hospice is coming up as a discharge option. Um, I think it's important, too, that, um, as sort of Laura was kind of addressing earlier, that attempts have been made to sort of meet the patient halfway in terms of how teams approach their care in the acute care setting um, because hospitals are very rigid and structured environments, um, which is often difficult um, for patients to navigate. I think it's important uh, for the providers involved in the care of the patient and also potentially folks on the ethics committee who are talking about this case to sort of make sure um, that attempts have been made to work with the patient and understand where the patient is coming from. Um, and from a medical perspective as well, I also think it's important to make sure um, that when we talk about failure of psychiatric treatment um, or patients who have had refractory psychiatric illness, um, that we make sure that they actually have been offered optimal psychiatric care um, because I feel like oftentimes some of these patients have fallen through the cracks have um, had very disjointed care, have never, um, have had difficulty engaging in care with one provider regularly. Um, and that that, I think it's important to make sure that that's addressed during the patient's hospital stay before hospice is offered as a potential discharge option. Any other important points to address here? Laura, any thoughts? So with these cases, one of the critical points that has to be addressed from an ethics standpoint as well as a medical standpoint is what is the patient's ability to contribute to decision making. We all know that just because a patient has a psychiatric disability, that does not mean that they necessarily lack capacity. And even if they do lack capacity, it might be partial, it might not be complete. Um, But we want to be really, really careful before we assume a patient lacks capacity. Those assessments should be as fine-tuned as possible before we have a patient who's speaking coherently and expressing preferences, before we just assume that that 
patient cannot be the final authority um, as their own decision maker um, or that they cannot consent or refuse on their own behalf is what I mean. Um, but also, even if they do lack capacity in full or in part, they could still potentially contribute to decision-making as a partner through a shared decision-making process. Tough choice ethical dilemmas in healthcare like those we reflected on in this episode are challenging. We appreciate the reflections of our guests today. As always, appreciation to our listeners as well. Thanks, everyone. We hope you have enjoyed this edition of the Ethics Lab podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. Ethics Lab was created by Kevin Murphy and Russell Keithline. Thanks for listening. Join us again.